0: Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hi,
1: it is Friday, September 18th. You're listening to Q, the CBC radio show. This is the podcast version of it. Today on the show, Kate Winslet. Uh, This is pretty big. This is the first time Kate Winslet's been on the show. I have to tell you, when you talk to her, you look at her and you go, you're Rose from Titanic. Like I don't – I I try to see people for who they are and not for the roles they play. But my God, when I was talking to her, I was like, you're Rose like, – that's like the most – one of the movies that changed the world and there you are. I and mean, We talk a little bit about validation as an actor. So she's in this new movie called Ammonite where she, you can just tell she works so hard. She doesn't take anything for granted. She doesn't let her fame obscure the work it takes to be an incredible actor. She talks about combing the rocks in the sand trying to find fossils because she's playing a, a paleontologist. And, and then she talks about how – how even though she Titanic completely changed her life, it's not what drives her. Fame and success is not measured by awards or, or, you know, how many people recognize you at the airport. She has this really interesting perspective that I didn't think someone of her stature would still have on what makes you a success. After that, our cue. This music panel is here: A Harmony and Lisa Christensen to talk a little bit about the American Country Music Awards. And a little bit about Justin Bieber's new single. After that, Amy Winehouse would have turned 37 this week. So we invited her saxophone player, Neil Sugarman, on to talk a little bit about making the record uh, Back to Black with her and Mark Ronson. And then finally, a hip-hop legend, Fab Five Freddy, is on the show to talk about the early days of hip-hop. This is someone who was on the ground floor. He was on someone who was like on the road during the early hip-hop parties, like when hip-hop was birthed. And he's going to talk a little bit about what that was like. It's hard to believe, like in our lifetime, a genre of music sprung up in front of this guy's eyes that completely changed everything. All right, show starts now. Welcome to the show. Guess what day it is? Oh, it's Friday. When Kate Winslet was growing up, she was surrounded by actors. Her extended family is full of them. Her her entire house was full of actors. You could kind of say she went into the family business. But that still doesn't seem right because Kate spent the last 3 days exploring her own path. She's known for playing gutsy women who challenge what's expected of them, like Titanic or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind or or Little Children. And her new film Ammonite is a romantic drama inspired by the true story of Mary Anning. Mary Anning was a Victorian era fossil hunter, and people didn't appreciate her work at all. While she was alive, and the film also includes a same-sex love story between Mary and a character played by Saoirse Ronan.
2: See here, this is a row of small vertebrae, and these flatter sides, where the ribs would have been attached. But these ones have a certain shape, which tells me they would have been near the skull. And that's good. It would be very good, yes.
3: I'm my rock was
2: worth the work. Emma
1: Knight is playing at the Toronto International Film Festival this week. And as you're about to hear, not everyone agrees with the way Mary is portrayed in this film, including Mary's family. So Kate and I are going to talk a bit about that. Kate's also getting something called the TIFF Tribute Award for Outstanding Contributions to the Film Industry. So I caught up with Kate Winslet via Zoom. And after the usual, you know, can you see me? Can you hear me? Is this thing working? We figured it out. There you are. There I am. How are you?
2: Oh, very well. Thank you very much for having me.
1: It's a joy to Thank have you. you.
2: <laughs> I don't think I've ever been on your show. So this is like a, this is an exciting moment. Thank you for having me. It's
1: a pleasure to have you. Were you were you into rocks and fossils now before before you made this film?
2: No, not really. I mean, fascinated, yes, but I knew really very little about Mary Anning. And I, I found myself feeling kind of quite ashamed um, at how little I, I, I knew about her. But uh but I had an amazing experience getting ready to play the part because I worked one on one with a paleontologist down in Lyme Regis, and I actually got to comb all of the beaches that Mary would have worked on um, specifically quite specifically two beaches with a wonderful man who who truly taught me how to fossil hunt and to crack open rock nodules in search of ammonites and i I really can do it, and uh, that was something that I that I learnt on on the film. So um, it was a, it, it was a, a great and very very unexpected experience in in that regard, and working with the wonderful people down there.
1: Are you still doing it? Are you still walking around the beaches, going at oh, this one right there?
2: Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a global pandemic going on. Hold on, what? Wait, wait hold on, going what? Out.
1: <laughs> hold on, what? I haven't. I haven't maybe over there has hasn't, hasn't made it here yet. <laughs>
2: I am in touch with the man who taught me, actually. We've, we've remained really good friends. And in fact, there was a, a, a lovely woman uh, named Lizzie Wiscom who works at the Lyme Regis Museum. And she's partially sighted and was just so kind. And I spent the day with her and her guide dog and just listened to her speaking because the Dorset accent that I had to do for Mary is not something that came very easily to me. And she specifically helped me and she talked about it on local Dorset radio. And I, so I called the gentleman who helped me to Fossil and just said, oh, will you, you know, say hi to Lizzie and tell her I said thanks. And So it's really nice. I've kept in touch with those people and uh, I feel very fortunate to have met them all.
1: What was it about Mary Anning that made you want to tell her story?
2: Well, you know, we live in a time, I think, where we just need more strong female stories, particularly truthful ones like this, which tells the story of a woman who was marginalized by, you know, a patriarchal society. You know, she lived in a time of systemic oppression and she achieved extraordinary things in the world of science but her findings were were taken from her robbed from her really by 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 rich wealthy greedy men who frankly weren't as clever as she was i mean if it weren't for mary anning you know she she discovered she discovered dinosaur poo if it weren't for her We wouldn't know what dinosaurs ate. She discovered the coprolite, which is the name for fossilized feces, dinosaur feces. And uh, I've polished poo, by the way. That was one of my things I had to learn. I had to learn how to polish a coprolite and turn it into a nice, shiny, round stone. (laughs) Um, I got quite good at that, actually. (laughs)
1: Well, that's a skill you can take with you for the rest of your life, Kate
2: well there you go (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, so uh but she was an extraordinary woman you know she lived a life of poverty she was completely uneducated she was totally self-taught she learned everything about paleontology from her father whom she had a really close relationship with who sadly died when she was quite young um and she was a remarkable woman who deserves a place in the history books and 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 sadly, doesn't really have one. Um, So, and she was very uncomplaining. She was extremely compassionate. She was very well loved by her community. And it was an honor to play someone as historically significant as her.
1: When this film was first announced, there was some controversy about it being a romance. Critics, including descendants of Mary Anning, argue that no one really knows if she was gay or straight. There's not enough evidence. Why was it important for you to help put this interpretation of her story into the world?
2: well that 's true i mean there, there, there isn't actually um, there isn 't any s- historical ev- evidence to support whether she had relationships with men or with women and this was very much francis lee 's interpretation. I think the thing that felt um, wonderful for us was that Francis uh, creates a story about two people who fall in love and that they are of the same sex is never addressed or explained in any way. It just is so it, it appears to me that this I feel like this kind of storytelling is so important in terms of the evolution of the way audiences and the world view LGBTQ people and their relationships. And so by telling these kinds of stories, we're normalizing same sex love without without fear, you know, with, without without hesitation. And and it was such a privilege, honestly, to be part of. Of that conversation contributing in some small way to that important ongoing conversation. And,
1: and so, I mean, so looked forward to by members of the queer community when this film was announced. I mean, I, I, can, I can imagine that must that might add a little bit of pressure to it. It might, it might add a little bit of pressure to, the, to being in the film or putting the film out, knowing the anticipation of it.
2: Well, I just think we need more of these films so that so that they just become part yeah. of the mainstream. You know, it's so it's so so often that films where there is a same-sex couple at the core of the story or as a part of the narrative. Um, so often we end up comparing those films immediately to other films of that nature. But actually, if there were just more films where same-sex relationships were part of the narrative, then perhaps we wouldn't be drawing comparisons so immediately. We would just be enjoying learning about those people and and watching those stories evolve.
1: If you're just joining us, this is Q. I'm speaking to the Kate Winslet, Oscar-winning star of The Reader, Titanic, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and many other movies. She's got a reputation in Hollywood playing gutsy women who challenge what's expected of them. And her latest film, Ammonite, is no exception. It's showing this week at the Toronto International Film Festival. She's also receiving the TIFF Tribute Award for Outstanding Contributions to the Film Industry. It's funny to talk to you there at your house uh, during this COVID thing. You know, all I can think is how how your life is different from uh, when you were growing up. You grew up in a a family full of actors. I can't imagine what it's like to grow up in a house uh, where just about everybody is an actor.
2: Well, there's lots of competing for for, for sort of airtime in terms of who can speak the loudest and shout the loudest. Is that so? Um, so so and actually at the moment history is slightly repeating itself my daughter Mia is actually now an actress and funnily enough she did a small independent film in Ireland at the end of last year which is going to the Rome Film Festival and so is Ammonite so it's quite funny like, having these qu- quite fun conversations about like oh you know how fun mum we've both got a film in a festival together and it's a, it's a really wonderful experience but now I'm very very lucky to have grown up with a with a bunch of rowdy actors around me because it's always kept me so grounded and it's just. A a job and I love it and we all love it. And I think I love it all the more as time goes by. I just really, really feel grateful for it. It,
1: it, it is just a job and I, and I can tell your love for it. I can't help but think though, when you were, I was thinking about this the other day, you know, when you were in Titanic, that level of fame in terms of being an actor doesn't happen very often, you know? And it, I can't imagine what it was like. How much did everything change for you at such a young age when you get Titanic?
2: Well, It changed, you know, a lot. And actually, when we were making the film, I do remember... I remember the, the makeup artist. I think it was said to me, "Oh gosh, how are you going to cope? You know, your life's going to change so significantly." And I would say, "No, no, it's not. My, my life, my life isn't going to change. What are you talking about? I'm still going to be me." I felt sort of quite defiant, and of course, I am still me. But my life did it did change um, most definitely, and and and, I, and nothing can really prepare you for that. Obviously, I'm incredibly grateful for the great platform that it provided me for my career, but but my 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 life in terms of personal Privacy changed quite, quite significantly. But, uh, but, you know, I, you know, you live and learn. And uh, I just feel very grateful. I think now that, that all of those things happened to me 20 plus years ago, I think I'd find it really hard being suddenly famous in this particular climate, the world we live in now, because I think with social media, there's a huge amount more pressure, I think on new talented individuals Mm. to to, to to keep getting those likes and and, and and really keep uh I think striving for um you know screen time and uh and I think there's pressure, more and more pressure on young people these days than there was when Leo and I were experiencing the sort of Titanic fame. Um but, you know, I'm an old lady now. Oh, go away. Tom, go I'm, away. I'm, nearly 40, I'm nearly 45 go years old. Go away, go Can away. Can you believe I had my 21st birthday on Titanic? Oh, gee. I turned 21, I turned 21, and Leo turned 22, and we've been wishing each other a happy birthday every year ever since.
1: Well, not to brag, but I, I turned 21 at a pizza hut. Um, but I... I <laughs> I am interested to talk to you uh, about you receiving the TIFF Tribute Award for Outstanding Contributions to f- the Film Industry. But, you know, I also think about Mary Anning. She was a scientist who wasn't celebrated in her time. She didn't get the praise male paleontologists got. And it makes me think about validation. On that theme, I'd love to know, like, it can't be awards. What is it that gives you validation as an actor? What, what is it that gives you that feeling of success?
2: Honey, you're only as good as your last gig. And if they invite you back and they want you for more, then that's that's validation, just just keep the foot in the door, stay in the game, head down, work hard, get on with it. And I just feel very lucky that I'm continuing to be able to get those gigs. You know, I, I love my job. And, and I think, you know, we live in a time where to have job security is something that so few people have, and I've never been more grateful.
1: You know, hearing someone like Kate Winslet, who's had such an amazing career and you know won an Oscar, say she's still looking for that next gig and she's still grateful for the gigs that she gets is, is meaningful to me. I spoke with Kate Winslet about her new movie, Ammonite. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Here are some stories we're looking at for you today.
0: The amazing mist begins to solidify, begins to imprison Jennifer Walters. But no mere mist can imprison the savage She-Hulk.
1: So that's from The Incredible Hulk, a Marvel Comics-inspired cartoon that ran on NBC in 82. The uh, She-Hulk, that's Bruce Banner's cousin, the normally prim, and proper lawyer, Jennifer Walters. And here's the big news. The Canadian actor Tatiana Maslany has just been cast as the brand-new live-action She-Hulk. You might remember Tatiana Maslany from Orphan Black. She's been on cue a bunch of times. So far, I know her's a pretty calm, nice person. But I have no doubt that once you make her angry... She can pull it off. Congratulations to Tatiana. The Marvel series will air on disney plus um, here 's a story about valuable Inuit art popping up at an unexpected place. An empty, dilapidated house in Detroit. Michigan. More than 40 original signed prints sat untouched for years. The previous owner had been an art teacher and art collector. The new owners of the home realized that they had come across something special. The prints are from King Ya'id, Nunavud. Uh, some of them are even by the Le K'noyewa Ashavak, legendary Inuk artist. So there's a good chance you've come across one of her uh, incredible owl prints. A local Detroit gallery is currently restoring the artworks for display. My name is Tom Power. Take a listen to this.
0: You did it save me. You didn't think I needed.
1: That is the country singer Marin Morris performing her latest single to hell and back off her album Girl from last year. That performance happened earlier this week at the 55th annual American Country Music Awards where Marin also took home female artist of the year. Don't worry, she didn't just take the award home randomly. She did win it. The ACMAs were originally scheduled for April 15th. But once again, the pandemic flung that plan into a high-speed blender, and the awards ended up getting rescheduled and also reimagined. Some of the biggest country stars in the U.S. gave their fans a night of live, yet socially distanced, performances and tributes keith urban can now add host of the country music awards to his resume and now that that's all over how did it go and how did they speak about the moment that our world is currently in we wrenched the cue this music panel out of bed early on a friday to break down the event a harmony is a freelance music journalist and critic hi harmony hey tom and lisa christensen is a cbc arts reporter on the line from vancouver bc lisa are you there well, she gave up. You know, Harmony, whenever we talk about country music, Lisa takes off. That's what I've always heard. <laughs> uh, we're, we're trying to get Lisa on the line here from Vancouver. We're going we're gonna, to uh, work on getting her on in just a second. But Harmony, let's start with you. How was the American Country Music Awards?
4: Uh, you know given the circumstances I think they did a good job I think in the beginning of this kind of uh, socially distant award show era all you could focus on was the sadness the empty seats and uh, you know the lack of cheers in the crowd but I think now we've kind of fallen into a rhythm and kind of gotten used to the new normal and I'm no longer focused on the sadness of it I'm looking at how well are uh, these institutions doing with the uh, the tools that they have so I think they did a good job I like that they split it up between uh, three local to give the audience some variety. Um, you know, even though the Grand old Opry House uh, where Keith Urban was hosting was empty, I still like what they did with the lighting. Uh, they tried to make the seats seem somewhat filled mm-hmm. and a little bit more uh, lively. So I think they did a good job with what they have.
1: Lisa, you know? what did you think? Are you there now?
4: I am here now. Hey, yes. there you are. You, you, yes. Yeah, you were hanging out
1: with Keith Urban, I, I think.
5: Uh, um, <laughs> I think that might have helped the show a little bit if <laughs> Keith had a friend. Um, you know... <laughs> It's a hard thing to host a show, especially at such a somber time. It started with a somber note. I think I saw, you know, Keith try to do some uh, a little bit of jokes every once in a while, but I thought he was going to pull his collar out and go tough crowd, but there was no crowd. So (laughs) I think maybe, you know, maybe another person there to to kind of fell off of would have made um, a show feel a little less lonely because, boy, did it feel
4: lonely.
1: Uh, Harmony, what did you think about uh, Keith's hosting chops here?
4: You know, I think, again, he did the best he could with what he had. It would have been nice for him to have, like, the crowd's energy to feed off of. But, you know, he rolled with the punches. It's also not easy doing double duty hosting the show and performing in it several times throughout the night. So kudos to him for switching hats and uh, especially in this stripped down presentation where he didn't have that energy to feed off of. He did what he could.
1: Lisa, highlight of the Country Music Awards for you.
4: Well, I have
5: to say, I really enjoyed the intro. Seeing all these uh, country stars starting off with some of their greatest hits—you um, forget, like I don't know—just when Carrie Underwood just walked out in that gold dress doing "Before You Know It," Chiefs. I was like, okay, we're we're gonna do some country music tonight. <laughs> so, uh, and, <laughs> and then I really enjoyed the Miranda Lambert, just a stripped-down, beautiful song, and. Tenille Towns, you know, she got a few minutes and she really knocked it out of the park. So um, I guess I'm just highlighting all the
4: women there.
1: And Tenille Towns, by the way, Canadian country singer as well. Nice to see her yeah. from Grand Prairie, Alberta. Nice to see her as part of that, uh, uh, that night. Harmony, what about you?
4: Yeah, so I agree with Lisa on Tennille Towns. I thought she put great energy into her performance. If she was put off by the room being empty, she certainly didn't show it. I thought it was cool of uh, Blake Shelton and Gwen Stefani to use a green screen to make it appear as though they were in Nashville, even though they were in L.A. Um, I loved watching Mickey Guyton in her stunning white gown and seeing her pregnancy glow. That performance was really poignant and beautiful. And I was excited to see Taylor Swift return to the ACMA stage.
1: Well, let's take a listen to a little bit of Taylor Swift from that night. Take a listen to this.
4: Betty,
0: I won't
2: make assumptions about why you switched to home room, but I think it's because of me. Betty, one time I was riding on a skateboard when I passed your house, it's like I couldn't breathe. You heard the This is Q. I'm Tom
1: Power, A Harmony, and Lisa Christensen. Uh, That is Taylor Swift's live performance debut of Betty at the American Country Music Awards earlier this week. Betty is off Taylor's latest album, Folklore. The country music community has a a, a weird relationship with Taylor. Obviously, she came up in country music. There's a big painting of her uh, down on the corner of Broadway in Nashville, but they've been upset with her, and they've let her go when she moved into pop music. It's been a fractious uh, relationship. This was her first time back at the Country Music Awards in seven years Harmony, how do you think she did?
4: I thought she did a good job. And it was really symbolic. It felt like a return to her roots. You know, folklore is stripped down. It's subdued. And this performance really reflected that. It was just Taylor and her guitar, no clutter, no choreo, no pop gloss, no pyrotechnics. So I really liked it. And uh, Lisa was mentioning earlier, you know, uh, that these performances this year were really stripped down. I think that's a blessing in disguise. Like, yes, social distancing means that we have to watch these kind of bare bones performances. But it's an opportunity to really connect with the artist. Again and remember how talented they are without distractions. Lisa, I don't know. I really enjoyed it.
1: Lisa, I don't know how you feel about Taylor Swift. Like, how did you? How did you feel about her performance that night?
4: Oh, I thought it was uh, was
5: great. But I I I think Taylor's. You know, she's got her foot all the time in country music. I mean, four years ago, a better man, little big town. She wrote that. You know, and she won the you know the Grammy and country music awards for that song. So I think she's always in that world. Um, what I miss, I have to say, is I understand it was all stripped down, but Taylor always at the front of an award show, dancing and singing, arm in the air, <laughs> awkward moving. I mean, I felt a bit nostalgic for that. I get the stripped down thing, but I want Taylor awkwardly dancing in the front of an award show. Is that so much to ask? No, you're right, Lisa. You
1: know, me and Taylor, awkwardly dancing to award shows are really just a big part of award <laughs> shows. Well, not together, I just awkwardly dance on my own. Um, Lisa, um, let, let's talk a little bit about this. One of the big ways that almost everything in the music industry is being judged right now, is on the response to anti-Black racism, in particular country music, uh, and in particular in the United States. How did the Academy do at acknowledging anti-Black racism at this year's ceremony?
5: You know, they I mean, they kicked the show right off with that acknowledgement, um, you know, with, uh, with Keith Urban there. Um, but, uh, you know, here's the thing. We're going to know next year, aren't we? We're going to know what the follow-through looks like. We're going to know how you know, is it just something you're doing right now because you think it's the right thing? So the show, I think it could have been a bit more overt. There was just subtle tones to it. Um, But as I said, this is one of these things we're going to mark. Like, you know, if we're having this discussion next year, let's see this continues. It's hard to say for me right now exactly what's going to happen.
1: Harmony, you mentioned that Mickey Guyton was there. You know, incredible song, Black Like Me this year came out, Uh, spoke up so much about her experience as a black country singer. How do you feel that the Country Music Awards did?
4: Yeah, I got to agree with Lisa. I think they tiptoed around the issue. They said something, but they didn't really say much at the same time. There was lots of vague language about coming together and fighting against social injustice. And I'm doing air quotes there. (laughs) There was a reluctance to call racism by its name. And that hesitation to me says more uh, than anything that Keith Urban could have said in the opening remarks. Um, I think in previous years, it might have seemed brave or forward thinking of the ACMAs to include any statement. But we're in this moment where people are speaking up. There is an expectation to make a clear stance against anti-Black racism and to do anything less now in these times seems insufficient.
1: Let's take a, a, a step aside here and move to another topic in the last few minutes we have left. Take a listen to this.
4: The way you hold me,
0: hold me, hold me, hold me, hold me. Feel so ho. Hold- There's a way
3: you hold me, oh me, oh me, hold me, hold me Feel so holy
1: That is a new song called Holy, brand new song from Justin Bieber featuring Chance the Rapper. Justin released his last album, Changes, at the top of this year, but like most artists, he had to reschedule his tour plans due to the pandemic. This new song also comes equipped with an accompanying music video that stars actor Ryan Destiny as Justin's love interest, along with an appearance from Fez, Wilmer, Wilmer Valderrama from That 70s Show. Harmony, what do you think of the Beeb's new sound?
4: Uh well i mean he's trying he tried really hard on this Um, what do you mean he's trying what do you mean he he tried like and the thing is the song is not awful the video isn't awful but i think he was just trying too hard to be heartwarming it was like let's throw in some religious references if that doesn't work let's address the economic crisis let's make a black woman the leading lady let's throw fez in there playing a veteran coming home to his family like it just felt cloying and too on the nose for me oh Fez look good though fez
1: fez yeah, Fez always looks good. Lisa, what did you think?
4: Yeah, I
5: can't say it better. Um, everything there. I mean, boy, oh boy. Uh is there anything more cutting than he tries. But um, yeah, I mean it was there. Um, there are people that are going to grab I didn't think it sounded particularly different. Um, I don't think I would have listened to that and gone, you know, wow, that's Justin Bieber. I don't feel like that happened to me. Um it it, you know, it felt like a, a fairly standard song and yeah he tried and um uh, and the video is is interesting too how about all that
1: i just want him to do the love yourself beaver again that was my favorite Bieber, like acoustic stripped down beaver what happened to that beaver where did he go
5: yeah, that was a good Last, Bieber. Can, can we yeah.
1: vote on Beaver's new like. <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on. So let, let's go back to what Harmony was talking about there. Uh, his manager, the infamous Scooter Braun, has tweeted the hashtag, a new era begins. And you could say the most interesting sign of Justin Bieber's new era has been his stance on anti-black racism. Last year, he had this Instagram statement acknowledging some of the hurtful things he said in the past about black people. More recently, he's admitted the massive role black music and culture have played in his success. He's been trying to use his massive social media, uh, following to raise awareness around anti-black racism. Harmony, I know he's trying. Does it feel like Justin is making any kind of shift in his outlook?
4: Yeah, so... Uh good effort and again he's trying but I'm not quite ready to hand out I know I sound terrible but it's like I'm not ready to hand out gold stars to Justin Bieber or to anyone right now Um, and that's not to say that Justin hasn't grown over the years but I just think it's really convenient to suddenly care about anti-black racism in this moment and it's also really easy to perform awareness if all you have to do is post a few pictures to Instagram Um, I'm skeptical about any celebrity participating in this anti-black racism trend that we're in Uh, and That's not to say that I don't want people to take a stand, but I think my fear is that people will move on from this conversation without having affected any real change. Lisa was mentioning it earlier, and I agree that I'm interested in what happens three months from now, six months from now, a year from now. Who's still going to be taking a stand and actually taking action and who will have moved on from this moment when it's no longer trendy?
1: Lisa, is speaking up on anti-Black racism a prerequisite for any non-Black pop artist making either Black music or music to be uh, perceived to be inspired by it right now?
5: It's literally the least you can do, right? I mean, acknowledging something that uh, you, you should, it should have become a part of you. I don't, I don't understand why this is like a, a come-to-God moment, if we can use that for Justin Bieber. Um, I think this should have been um, all along. So in that way, yeah, I, w- I want to see what happens next. Um, how does it carry forward? What does it look like when it becomes a part of you that I think it should have always been a part of him? I mean, how did, how did he have all these relationships and not know this?
1: Uh, Harmony, so, yeah. I, Harmony, I'll, I'll give the last word to you here before we go. I mean, Justin Bieber's uh, you know, record was made before the murder of George Floyd, but it's not like anti-black racism was not on everyone's mind before that as well. I'll give you the last word on this. Is this a prerequisite for artists going forward right now?
4: Exactly. I agree uh, with that statement that you just said, that anti-Black racism is not new. And I think, yes, fans do have more of an expectation for artists to speak up against injustices of all kinds. But I don't want to see performative allyship. I don't want artists posting platitudes to social media just to get streams and get to the top of the charts. I want Black people and other marginalized groups to be treated fairly. And that requires a shift in your mindset and your mentality. That's not something you can capture on Instagram.
1: Thank you to you both. Harmony, thanks so much for your time. Thanks a lot. Lisa, thanks to you.
4: Have a good weekend.
1: Thank you both for hanging out with me. R.A. Harmony is a freelance music journalist and critic. Lisa Christensen is a CBC arts reporter on the line from Vancouver, British Columbia.
0: Sound off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with, from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and, of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. This week, the
1: singer Amy Winehouse would have turned 37 years old. Amy Winehouse died in 2011, but in the short time she was with us, the world fell in love with her voice. The deep, soulful sound seemed to come right from her guts. And when you think about how beloved she was, how popular her music was, it's hard to believe she only released two full-length albums. One of those records, the final one she released, was called Back to Black. It came out in 2006. A little while ago, we asked one of the musicians who played on the record to, even though it might be a bit hard, take a look back on that album, what it meant and what it continues to mean.
6: Hi, I'm Neil Sugarman, a uh, member of Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, also co founder of Dap Tone Records and tender saxophonist on Amy Winehouse's record Back to Black.
0: He left no time to regret.
6: Back to Black was recorded at Daptone Records, um, House of Soul, produced by the incomparable Mark Ronson. So Mark Ronson had been friends with us and we had done a lot of recording with him previous and he had brought the project in telling us that this was going to be an important project probably nominating for the nomination for the Brit Awards and she was on her way to stardom.
2: (laughs) ¶¶
6: It was an interesting voice because we're, at Daptone, we're definitely recording more gospel-sounding soul voices. So it was, you know, it was it I took a step back at first, you know, but obviously you could hear in the songs that she was writing just how perfectly her voice fit in.
5: They
2: tried to make me go to rehab, I said no, no, no. Yes, I've been black but when I come
6: I think what made Amy so special was just, she was tapping into her music that, you know, influences of old music and new, putting a new spin on on a, a genre of music that existed before, and just bringing tons of personality to it. And more than anything, she wrote unbelievable songs. She had a lyrical content that was able to, everyone could take away something from her experiences. And I just think that that's what made that record so special.
2: For you, I was a
0: Love is a
6: so we were touring with her in the U.S. just as the record had, was breaking over here. I think it had come out in the U.K. first And it was incredibly exciting because you were really seeing this record and her personality and as an artist just sort of blossoming. I mean, it was like catching fire. So it was real exciting. She was jokey, you know, just real, you know, just like one of the cats in the band. You know, she was. um, I think she, you know, I think maybe part of her whole. The whole situation was that she was a musician first. I don't think she played music to achieve some kind of stardom. She played music because she loved playing music and she felt comfortable being around musicians and talking about music. So the songs on that record that really stand out for me are Love is a Losing Game and He Can Only Hold Her. I just feel that those songs sort of, uh, to me, show what Amy was capable of, just being able to use influences, it just really worked for me. There's not many records that are being made like that, that touch so many people and it does what great art does. It t- took people outside of themselves and People were reacting to it when they heard it. You know, we would see people in the front row. Everyone knew every song, so it wasn't just rehab or, you know, whatever, uh, whatever hits were coming off the record. People were singing along, basically devastated by hearing her sing these songs that everyone knew and loved, and just to see that happening at such a kind of quick pace was kind of incredible. Everyone knows that record. I mean, there's not been an artist like that that had such a, I feel like, a broad appeal. For the short, tiny, short career she had, everyone was touched by her.
1: That was the tenor sax player Neil Sugarman talking about Amy Winehouse's album Back to Black, Amy's final album, before she died in 2011. Earlier this week, it was Amy Winehouse's birthday. She would have turned 37 years old this past Monday. My name is Tom Power. This week, the auction house Sotheby's held its first ever hip-hop auction in New York. Check out some of the amazing hip-hop memorabilia that was for sale. Love letters that Tupac Shakur wrote to his sweetheart back in high school. The colorful jackets salt and Pepper wore in the music video for Push It. A custom MTV ring that belonged to Fab Five Freddy. Do you know Fab Five Freddy? If you don't know Fab Five Freddy, it's hard to describe him in just one word. It's hard to describe him in like fifty. He's a visual artist, a VJ, a filmmaker, a hip-hop historian, a visionary. He's, in the 80s, had a vision of hip-hop as this multidimensional thing, like a kaleidoscope of hip-hop is rapping and graffiti and breakdancing and beatboxing and DJing, all of it. He also hosted a show called Yo! MTV Raps. He almost single-handedly helped hip-hop grow into a huge cultural phenomenon in the media, Today, Fab Five Freddy is still exploring the intersections. He's got a Netflix show about the place where race and hip-hop and marijuana culture meet. It's called The Grass is Greener. So when I got to sit down with him, I started our conversation with a song. Where do you start with a hip-hop icon like Fab Five Freddy? you got to start with a song, right? But maybe it's not a song you'd expect.
4: The beach has a rich and magnificent Magnificent history, full of adventure, excitement, and mystery.
1: That's a little bit of all Africa from legendary jazz drummer and bebop pioneer Max Roach from his We Insist Freedom Now suite.
3: Yes, wow. <laughs> and Abby Lincoln, who was his then wife, and uh, yeah, she was like my godmother back then when and I was a little boy. Max
1: Roach was your godfather.
3: Yeah, Max and my dad grew up together in Brooklyn, and uh, Max became a really important musician, um, one of the architects of the sound that we know of as bebop.
1: Yeah. It's 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 crazy to me. I mean, like, because to me, Max Roach is this is this icon, and to you, I mean, he was he was a buddy. He was your dad's friend. And I, did I hear a story
3: that he once came down and watched you rap? Yes. Yeah, so what happened was when I was, you know, not trying to be a rapper but when it was this cool thing developing in the streets through the 70s into the early 80s, Max came by to visit, you know, visit the family and I wasn't home and later when I got home my dad said, hey, you know, Max was by today and he was asking, What you've been doing? What are you up to? And my dad said he told him he's working on some DJ music thing with some DJ across the street. And Max was very curious and said he wanted to see it. And I thought, man, this is crazy. I didn't, I had to do it because I couldn't chicken out. But Max was so excited, and he, <laughs> one of the like landmark moments of my life. I thought he was just telling me all this stuff to make me feel good. You know, a young kid trying to figure it out, whatever. But he said, man, this is going to be so big. I get what you guys are doing. You're breaking down music just to rhythms. and yeah. Well, this was probably about 1980, 81, when this encounter happened. And later, hip-hop would be... Really huge, and I'd be on MTV hosting this show, yeah. Yo, MTV Raps,
1: yeah. I mean, (laughs) I mean, you you never know how these things are going to turn out, right? And like, you made your name first as a graffiti artist, and and as I mentioned, you were sort of this bridge between New York's graffiti and the more like art establishment world. How hard was it to get the art establishment in New York's attention back in those early days?
3: It wasn't so much the art establishment, really. We were really trying to come in from another way, like a, Like, a, we came in through the side door, if you will, because it, like, my my idea was to connect with these people on the New Wave, the punk rock scene. There was some cool people that I had reached out to and was connecting with, people like in the group Blondie and people like Glenn O'Brien. It was people in the downtown New York scene that were just counterculture, making things happen in a really unique way and i was like hey i'm a person that's from the graffiti world i'm trying to make some moves into the art scene and i see the connection between this new music developing in the streets that's connected to to the graffiti i see a energy connection to what's going on in new wave of punk rock and they totally got it embraced me and then we started to like collaborate kind of exchange ideas and things like that so that happened in New York and it then you know helped a lot of other things jump off a lot of music collaborations you know Blondie made a record called Rapture yeah which uh, mentioned me A lot of people that first heard rap heard that record and didn't know what the hell was going on until other pieces of the puzzle came out. I'm like, wait a minute, this is a whole scene. <laughs> yeah. Oh and, and, and you
1: mentioned it's a whole scene because, you know, when I think about Wild Style, like the film hip hop's first film, you did it with Charlie Ahern, you know um, it's and what it did was it codified what hip hop is now. But hip hop being rap, graffiti, DJing, breakdancing, like all these things in one um, being hip-hop what gave you the idea to think about all of those things as hip-hop
3: well it, you know really it was kind of a little bit selfish in a way but I was also wanted to open the door for a lot of people it was kind of like I wanted to create as a person that was initially focusing on making visual art and I wanted to show and there was nothing positive in press about graffiti. I mean a lot of it was just straight vandalism. Let's be honest, but we were wild kids just trying to just let out all this energy, which is why it was this like m- massive thing across the entire city. Every ethnic kind of background of kid did it, but um you know, there were certain people that went super duper hardcore and it d- developed into something, you know. And I guess the idea was is to create a world that people could see what we were doing as part of a of a culture because it was only looked at as really negative, you know really with a lot of lot of racism motivating it, those black and spanish kids you know they 're just bad and they wrong and they 're vandalizing so I wanted to create a a kind of a, a, a like a like a look at a complete culture with a music, a form of dance uh, um, a form of you know b- visual art, if you will, and then bring all these things together in the movie Wild Style, which really helped embed that concept out there. And it it really caught on because it was a way that it represented like a lot of people in New York that had very little to nothing, creating this world that we could kind of entertain ourselves. And a lot of other people felt the need for that same thing wherever they were to the point where we are Talking right now, like, the most dominant form of music in the world is actually is hip-hop, which is crazy the, to me. <laughs> the, the, the most dominant culture in the
1: world is hip-hop, you know? In, in yeah, so I mean, it's just are, still
3: you know? a, every ethnicity of kid everywhere uh, finds a way to express themselves using these... Uh, these tools that we that we kind of shared with everybody. Well, I, I want to go back to the
1: early days of the honing of, of these tools. Take, take a listen to this.
3: I said, a hip, hop, the hip, hippie, the hip, the hip, hip, hop, you don't stop. Rock it out, baby, bubba, to the boogity bang bang, the boogie to the beat. Now, what you hear is not a test. I'm rapping to the bead. And me, the groove, and my friends are going to try to move your feet. You see,
1: If you're just joining us, this is Q. I'm Tom Power. I'm speaking with artist, director, hip-hop pioneer, Fab Five Freddy. So I got a reason I'm playing that, by the way. That's a bit of rapper's delight from the Sugar Hill game. I got a reason that's different than the one even you might think, but before we get to that, just tell me, like, that's a beat outside of, like, what the boys are doing, they're rapping over it. But, like, that's a beat that everyone was rhyming over, including yourself at early hip-hop parties. What made that beat so popular to rap over?
3: Wow, that's a good question. Well, first of all, that's Chic's Good Times, and um, that was the record. And that was a real pivotal like dance, funk, just an incredible record that was also a you know, big part of the, what became known as disco. And it just had something to the record where that breakdown basic groove was easy to rap over which is what was going on at that time so this is a point in time when a lot of hip-hop is still on the street it's underground this is like late 70s and like when that right record came out Mm -hmm. you know the record with the right field djs would play it and Kids would just want to get on the mic. And that whole idea of mixing back and forth between two interior tables, just keeping that steady groove going, that one particular breakdown part of the record, that became the thing. So so here's the reason I played that record. So we had Nile
1: Rodgers from Chic. Ah, He came on the show recently and he told us this Mm. story.
3: Um, Let me see if he told it right. Go so, ahead. <laughs> so,
1: so he tells a story about Debbie Harry taking him to what was known back then as A-Hip-Hop, where apparently you, other acts, were taking turns rhyming over the Good Times beat. Oh, here's, here's how he said he reacted in that moment.
4: I couldn't believe it because the only song that was played was Good Times. It was just over and over and over and over again for about maybe four hours. And I was like, going, aren't they sick of this song by now? Um and they were not sick of it and every mc was just lined up and they had their rhyme ready for good times when they would come in it was
3: it was incredible so did you get it right Essentially, he's right. I mean, people love the record. The record would be cut, not for four hours. There were dozens, hundreds of great records that DJs would, would play and cut up. But essentially, his record was a foundation and a, and a pivotal song at a critical time. In fact, in the movie Wild Style, a DJ by the name of Graham makes DST um, is cutting this record. It was the most... Um, incredible visual look at the art of scratching at a high level at that time still in the movie. And that's sparked so many people. And he's cutting good times. And it's like a lot of acts at the level of Nile Rodgers that were super big mainstream pop acts weren't feeling this new thing coming coming on, right? Yeah. They were disrespecting us the music, the culture, and a lot of it I understood because we were so radical and different. That's why and initially I felt there was a connection with the energy between what the New Wave and punk rock people were doing. And when I talked with them, especially the intellectuals like Kristine, Debbie, Glenn O'Brien, David Byrne from the Talking Heads, they all agreed and they all got it. So the way they were challenging the more established like rock and roll, the more established art world, we were going at what was kind of established in black music, if you will, and now was open was with open arms he embraced it people like george clinton embraced it people like james brown embraced it but there were a lot of other people that like were like get out of here that's not music what are you guys doing <laughs> you're clowns this is a trend yeah. this is a passing fact. how long you think that every time i'd be interviewed almost every time it would always be asked how long did i think this was going to last yeah. but i feel like you knew like i well, feel I like know. because I
1: was, I was, you just donated your memorabilia from your personal collection to the New York Public Library. We're right. talking Steinberg. classic classic hip hop photos and videos, rare footage of Jean-Michel Basquiat, even yeah. like audio of the moment Malcolm X was assassinated. But like back to the hip hop videos and photos, you wouldn't have held on to that stuff if yeah. you didn't
3: know that this was going to last, right? You're right, but I didn't realize this Culture would continue in such a strong and dominant way. I knew that. I mean, because we're talking forty plus years. You know that this, <laughs> from when I first had these ideas, right? But but the thing is, is um, I kind of was raised in a household we were aware of history. It was something my dad and his friends—they were extremely smart, super cool guys—that discussed things in a historical perspective and a and a global perspective. And I didn't realize how much of that rubbed off on me until I began to really make moves and do my thing. Every major institution in America is teaching this, and then it's just in terms of like, wait a minute—if they, you know—I just realized like what I had then began to become more significant and that I thought it would be interesting for people. And, you know, typically what happens with these archives, it usually happens when somebody has passed on. So I'm very much obviously still in the building. I'm still (laughs) here. The best (laughs) is yet to come. And the idea that they would be able to now digitize my hundreds of VHS tapes, my cassette tapes. I mean, do you know how much time it would take to take the VHS tapes and put them on a digital? It's, It's a it, it's a lot of work.
1: So, so I, you know, we, when we had Nile Rodgers on, we closed with this final question, and I wanted to ask it to you, too. Um, when they get around to doing, you know, the movie on your life, like the Fab Five Freddy story, right? movie's over, goes to black, the credits start rolling, what song starts playing?
3: Wow. <laughs> well, you got good questions, there. Um What song? Well, hmm, it could easily be... This the song that I made changed the beat, which at least just to adjust the music, because the song has this weird thing that happened at, at the end of the B-side of my record. They took my voice going, ah, this stuff is really fresh. And they ran it through a vocoder, So they gave it like a robotic, almost a vocoder kind of sound.
0: Oh, this stuff is real.
3: And then, uh, DXT scratched that sound on Herbie Hancock's Rocket. <laughs> and then, hundreds of DJs followed, and hundreds of records use it as a sample, as a scratching sound. It's like the most sampled record, and that's my song, Change the Beat. Fat Five Freddy, thanks so much for talking to me today. Yo, thanks so much. It's been a great interview. And please, guys, if you haven't watched my film. Uh, grass is greener about the history of cannabis in america please do because you guys have the kind of cannabis situation that we're hoping to have sometime soon in america but grass is greener will articulate the connection between the music and the plant that a lot of people don't know about from jazz all the way to hip-hop grass is greener on netflix baby I'm on the way on the top. I'm on the way on the top. I'm 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 on the top. on the top. I'm 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 on the top. i the top.
1: Hip-hop classic from Fab Five Freddy. That's called Change the Beat. Fab Five Freddy, artist, music director, hip-hop pioneer. He's got a series all about the history of race and marijuana in America. It's called The Grass is Greener, and you can find it on Netflix. That is it for the show today. On Monday, you'll hear my interview with Jude Law. We'll see you then. Later on.